It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the aforementioned Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Terrific panel today. We have Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bill. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Uh, We have Ambrose Clancy, who is the editor of the Shelter Island Reporter. Hey, Ambrose. Hey, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, we have Gianni Volpe, who is the uh, host of Heart of the East End right here on WLIWFM and a good friend of all of us. Good morning, Gianna. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be here. Good to talk to you. So um, let's start off with the obvious story, Carissa. It was uh, Hurricane Henri and the fact that he decided not to visit the South Fork uh, quite so in in the manner that we were afraid he was going to be visiting last weekend. Um, I think both of our papers sort of made the point. This was a nice test run, wasn't it, to see how prepared we are for a bad storm. Um, And we fortunately didn't get the worst of it. Um, But uh, boy, for a while there, we were right in the crosshairs and it felt like it was an inevitability. And um, it just goes to show you how how easy it is uh, for those storms to go just a little left or just a little right and either hit you or not hit you. So you gotta be prepared, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, you think to Friday and what the track was looking like, and they were saying, you know, this could be the, a direct hit. Southampton was the was where the eye of the hurricane was supposed to be passing, and it was upgraded to a hurricane at that point. So, you know, it was, this was how long, I mean, we had been preparing for all kinds of other disasters over the course of the past year and a half, but, um, but it was really like, what do you do, you know? Do you fill the tub, you check the generator, all these things that you kind of forget from year to year because you have all the other things to think about through the course of the year. So, um, yeah, that's what our, you know, our local police officers and government officials and people who are, you know, in the generator business were telling us, like, this was a good reminder, folks. So be prepared, have these things on hand, have your candles, have your batteries, check your generators now. If you want to buy one, it's probably already too late. Right. But I, I, I don't know about you, but a lot of people, I was, I was noticing so many people were like angry that the hurricane that we got less weather than we do. But I bought a tank of gas. What am I supposed to do with all this gas? Yeah. Put everything I, away. Damn these I, meteorologists! Well, I, I think I think you can all thank me for the hurricane turning course because I was I did I did some shopping, brought some bread and milk Saturday morning, brought it home and looked around and could not find any of my flashlights. And I know I had a couple and couldn't find them, so I ran to Lowe's and bought some very expensive flashlights. It's unbelievable what you pay for flashlights now, and brought them home. But I was considering: do I go get the flashlight or do I take a chance? And I said, well, let me go get the flashlight. And because I was finding prepared i think the storm right. said well, well we're not gonna we're not gonna bother bill so it, it turned you. to the right it was really i wasn't looking forward to the prospect as pscg was saying we could be out of power for seven to ten days i wasn't i wasn't which was pretty it. bold of pscg after after you know the the I criticism think. that they took from the last storm about not getting right. people back online right away yeah. is, there the, is there the flip side of this though that um, which what i've heard is that 
Uh, some people are going to, when the next storm is forecast, big storm is forecast, people are going to say, oh, come on, you know, See, remember, that's my concern. Me, uh, and not take preparation seriously. Yeah. Right. I've already got my flashlight. So <laughs> by the way, buying flashlights the day or two before a storm, you're going to probably pay a little more. Just a little tip for you for next time. But but I, I, I think that's a great point, Gianna. I'm worried that people are, are going to I mean, you saw on social media, I think someone said it was almost an anger that that, well, we got all prepared for this and everybody lied to us. That it doesn't happen. Well, the vagaries of storm systems was just kind of proven to us. But it, next time, we need to be ready as a community, and you need to each be ready as individuals, right? Yeah, absolutely. I also think we on Shelter Island, um, our editorial was a shout out to uh, the chief of police and the town managers who really um, were had plans in place. They were prepared. They were getting the word out. And also part of the editorial was that they invited us in, the press in, to meetings among Tom, town managers, which was a first. Mm. And um, that was really great. And as the chief of police said, you know, it, it's not because I love you so much. It's because that you can get the word out of what right. you're doing. And, sure. And, and they all work pretty really quickly, good. too, right? I mean, I think the the, the tracking of the storm kind of changed late or the intensity changed late. And it was, it wasn't until last Friday that, that they said it's going to, you know, it's going to come up, you know, and hit Long Island. So it was like this quick, quick turnaround, quick preparation on everybody's part. Right. right. How and prepared then, were you, Gianna? Uh, and then it was quick to track Northeast. Um, I'm glad I'm, I like hearing that about uh, Shelter Island. Um, just uh, knowing the history there, uh, things can be kind of or have used to be a bit uh, closed doors. So uh, I like to hear uh, the opening there um, in the future. Bill, tea lights are your friend and candles <laughs> in a pinch. Those are nice because the little tea lights or especially the ones that uh, you don't need to uh, light with a match, the electric ones with the battery uh, they won't start a fire you can put them all around those those would be a good idea the candles not when you have two large dogs that are always clomping around <laughs> oh, you, you try to stay away from candles because you just never know what's going to happen but yeah the electric tea lights is a good idea too gian i want to know how, how prepared were you for the storm did you have uh, any scrambling around at the last minute I, you know, I just, I moved the plants off the porch. I secured everything and put, you know, uh, in, me and my guy, we put everything into the shed. And uh, I was thinking, because I'm in a place where I was sure I would I would lose power sort of in the woods a bit. Um, so I wasn't really looking forward to it, but um, I actually was working a wedding at Brecknock Hall on Saturday. And, you know, they had to get the tent down that night um, and we ended up working uh, till midnight mm. and very grateful to hear that the storm had tracked northeast because I was thinking particularly with um, what's been going on with PSEG and and LIPA and and uh, the wake of uh, tropical storm Isaiah I, I was you know I was very worried 
So very grateful, very proud of the community and very hopeful that uh, folks continue to prepare no matter what, because though we do tend to get very lucky, uh, particularly on the East End uh, with uh, weather uh, being swept off and, uh, (laughs) you know, we see it with the with the heat stroke. the heat right now we don't have um as much of a high alert um yeah imagine if we were going through this heat of the last few days with no power it would would be a situation for a lot of people there's there's actually three points i wanted to explore about this the first one is that um the storm did not really affect the beaches as much as it might have right and and erosion is always a big problem when we talk about um, these major storms, and this was one that that we we dodged a bullet because it seemed like it was a worst case scenario because it was a full moon as well, right? And it yeah. came right around the time of the tides. And the concern um, I know that we had was that we might see a major erosion event, but that didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't seem to have happened. Um, Supervisor Peter Van Skoyak over at East Hampton said that. Um, some of the beaches actually gained sand because of the way the um, because the water was pushing the sand up. There were on the south side, and then on the north side, maybe they saw some erosion. But with the like you said, it was full moon, high tides. It was really feared that it could be the worst, and um, it turned out to be the opposite because of that. So it's you know it. A few you get you you know go a few dozen miles one way or the other and it changes dramatically what happens if you think back to um, ten years ago Hurricane Irene or it, Irene was a tropical storm I think when it came ashore here but um, but there was a lot of devastation then and people were out of power for a week lots of really big trees came down so a very different situation with a storm that came right about the same time of year. Lots of flooding in Sag Harbor with that storm, too. And and we didn't see any of that, fortunately. We were lucky that way. The second point is, you made this point, I think, um, in your editorial this week. We got to remember that the hurricane season is just started. I mean, we've got got a long time now where more storms may be coming. So when we talk about being prepared, uh, it's going to be an issue now. Uh, When does hurricane season end? I believe it's the end of November, right? Yeah, when I mean we got Sandy was the was the end of October, right? right? And yeah, Halloween. And so we still have a few months. You know, this is this is it's not the beginning because we're already on you know letter I, I guess Ida down on the um, Gulf Coast. But um, but yeah, we could have we could see a lot more tropical storms and and just the intense weather and and tides that can come with them. So it's nothing wrong with, with knowing what to do to be prepared and reading up on the, the bulletins that the different municipalities have put out about the different things you should be checking. So learn from your mistakes from this yeah. last one and, and, and be prepared next time. The third thing then is I do want to talk about um, briefly, and we could take, we could take 20 minutes talking about this, but the questions about the electrical system, the system, the, the infrastructure um, on the East end in general, and the, the hesitancy that we've always seen from PSCG Long Island to underground those lines. Do, do any of us think that's going to be something that gets a closer look and do we need another major storm to knock out power for a week 
to, to have this become something that gets explored in a little more serious way? Wow, that's a great question because I was just looking at the lines the other day and thinking about that. And when you consider the trends with climate change and the fact that we are likely seeing uh, more storms and more serious storms uh, heading forward, I think it's it's only a matter of time. Yeah, and I think, Bill, I, th- I think that that they have said in the past that it really is just a matter of expense and. Yeah, also, Hugh, just that it's difficult to to maintain a system that's underground. Um, well, yeah, huge, huge expense, and then there's you know infrastructure questions about buried lines and high water tables and and you know and and all that. Um, I, I think some of it's just PSEG too, and you know there's controversy in the last couple months about um, you know about renewing you know like but renewing the the contract with PSEG and whether that was a good idea or not and they went ahead and did it and I know that um, you know Assemblyman Thiel has, has been kind of critical of, of that and you know so so I, I I mean you know does it happen with PSEG or or is there some point where it becomes a you know a public utility again and maybe it's easier to do at that point? Or, or do they at some point replace, you know, PSEG, um, you know, with a different um, different supplier? Yeah. One of the things I found interesting was um, we got mostly rain here and we did get some wind on Sunday and Monday. And we had uh, at least one report of trees coming down on Monday, which makes a lot of sense because once the ground gets saturated, and then you get a little bit of wind. It doesn't take nearly as much to bring down trees. And the tree, I know um, in one spot, a tree came down and brought all the power lines down and knocked out the power for about 150 people on Monday, which is well after it was a beautiful day on Monday, um, you know, after the storm had passed. So it, it demonstrates just how vulnerable I think the electric system is. And I just, I feel like that's something that we need to take a closer look at moving forward and see if there is a way to get lines uh, buried underground uh, to protect them in case of storm. Um, this is uh, Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton, also the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Carissa Katz of the East Hampton Star, Ambrose Clancy of the Shelter Island Reporter, and Gianna Volpe from right here at WLAWFM. Uh, so Gianna, we, we had some big news this week off of the Shinnecock Territory uh, that uh, the nation has signed an agreement with a company uh, regarding a medical cannabis facility. This sort of fits with some of the stuff that's been going on on the territory to begin with, uh, but this really gives that project a big boost, right? Absolutely. You know, I got uh, the press release sent along uh, by David Falkowski of Open Minded Organic midweek. Um, Tilt Holdings, I believe they're out of Phoenix, Arizona, looking to uh, build and and even manage this facility for the nation who will wholly own it. I think it's uh, Little Beach Harvest is the name they're going with, a 60,000 square foot facility to a story uh, dispensary building and adjacent wellness lounge, which I thought was interesting. I, I wonder uh, what what that uh, means, but it's it's you know it's part of uh, the development that the nation has been uh, wholly involved in, and um, I thought it was an, a really interesting and and sort of smart partnership because the the way that Tilt 
was approaching it uh, in the press release was from a social equity uh, standpoint, saying that, you know, uh, a part of their interest here was in helping uh, the nation to um, achieve, uh, you know, uh, economic uh, developments. And I think it's, you know, it's certainly fits with the moment as far as, um, you know, the end of prohibition, as far as marijuana, not only in the, on the state level, but the federal level. Uh, what a moment in human history, really. Um, it's been tough uh, to keep to keep local this week with everything going on uh, around the world. Um, but uh, this is definitely huge news for right here in Southampton. What, what I thought was interesting, too, I believe that's Shanae Bullock's uh, organization. I think she's in charge of uh, the organization that's going to run the cannabis effort on the Shinnecock territory. What I thought was really interesting was the focus on vertical integration. This is going to be a project that is all about the Shinnecock being involved from start to finish. They will be cultivating it. They will be marketing it. They will be, they will be distributing it. They really have the entire process covered by working with this organization and they've talked about they've talked about getting into uh the medical cannabis market for the last couple of years but this really feels like it's going to jump start the idea and and part of their plan is to have a facility which would even have a drive-through dispensary for people who have a medical cannabis card in new york right right and it's it's absolutely it's huge and i thought what was great about it is that uh, they're talking about it as a a model for the future uh, you know the the nation has sort of been uh, in the spotlight for other indigenous um you know communities throughout uh, the united states when we look at uh, the sign uh the signs on uh, sunrise highway um, and how they dealt with and have been dealing with the, the lawsuits and the fallout from that. Uh, and I thought it was it was another point in the press release when they talked about uh, the nation as being a leader in this kind of movement. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see this, you know, uh, the same model used in other uh, places. I, I think I think also you've got to you've got to think that I mean so so the tribe members have have yet to vote on whether they're going to pursue um, selling recreational marijuana. I, I think if they do, then then this provides a quick pivot. This medical facility, medical cannabis facility, could quickly pivot to recreational use as as these you know as as these other you know. Um, legal pot shops, um, you know, pop up all over the East End. Certainly, they would be in a position to be competitive in that too, and you know, and generate a lot of revenue. And I think the influx of money from from this outside um, agency certainly would help with that. Although I don't know that you're going to see a lot of shops popping up all over the East End because a lot of uh, the municipalities uh, appear to be getting ready to opt out. Uh, to allowing the sale of marijuana and to have the marijuana, the lounges. Uh, a lot of the villages are already talking about it. And I think even the towns have had some conversations about opting out so that they would not allow that to happen. So it may end up that Shinnecock have, uh, if, as you say, it's, it, there's a lot of ifs involved there because they right. have not approved the sale for recreational use. But if they were to move in that direction once the state 
uh, comes up with a with a framework for allowing the sale, um, they might be positioned to be the the distribution point on on the south fork, maybe on the east end. That would be certainly something. And and like Bill said, uh, doing it now, getting the infrastructure infrastructure in place now is huge when you consider um, what happens in coming years. As far as opting out, Shelter Island was the first to do so. I just wanted to hear from Ambrose on that point because all summer we've been looking at uh, surrounding communities really uh, struggling with this question. But um Shelter Island opted out immediately with the understanding they could always opt back in later. Yes, right. And I think it was um, I think it was a popular decision by the town board uh, to because it it you know, you give yourself that option. You know, you opt out now and you can um, opt back in and allow, you know, commercial uh, outlets if you opt in, you can opt out. That's that's the kind of thing. Also, the town was um, uh, right on top of it. And, you know, they banned smoking on town beaches uh, of anything, tobacco or cannabis or anything uh, this summer. Um, right, because the rule is that if, if you're allowed to smoke cigarettes, you can smoke marijuana in the same place. Exactly. So if you want to exactly. get rid of the you know pot smoking on the beaches, you've got to make cigarettes illegal. Yeah, and they... Um, it it made a lot of sense to most people because if you're if you're smoking you know weed on on the beach and you know sometimes it'll get crowded for the July Labor Day and there's you know a crowd of kids right next to you, uh, not a good thing. And so the town was proactive on it and handled it very well, I thought. And we uh, we editorialized on that as well. Teresa East Hampton's having this conversation too, right? Yeah, the last time I was on a show with you and we were talking about this, it was um, East Hampton hadn't East Hampton Town hadn't really had a real substantive discussion about it. Um, since then, they've they've started to dive into what dive into the questions that that they have about uh, opting in, opting out. Um, before, I was more skeptical that they would. That they were even that they would even consider um, opting in, and after the last discussion, I, I think um, it seems to me a little bit more like there's they do still have their minds open about it. They haven't made a decision, and um, the questions they ask seem to be good ones. And one of the one that I thought was kind of interesting is their um, not that they could legislate this, but just the notion that what if people farmers saw this as a see this as a much more, um, you know, financially viable crop and a lot of food production were to shift into the growing of marijuana, how might that affect things? And it's, it's not exactly part of this. It's not really part of the what's before them, but, but it does raise an interesting question because there's obviously a lot of profit to be made in that, um, in the growing of marijuana. And you know, what's really interesting about that conversation though, Carissa is it's going to be difficult for a lot of the farm farms on the East end to switch over because marijuana is generally a crop that's grown in inside facilities and 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 have building. Well, and so I think, um, but just kind of like, wrapping wrapping their heads around the other aspects that that come along with this and how that might also affect um the economy out here in ways that might not include a recreational use facilities but what about growing and um 
you know, and, and how does that change things? Um, you know, One thing we can, we, we can probably rule out the, the swapping, the waving uh, stalks of corn for waving uh, marijuana plants in the fields. I don't yeah. think we're going to yeah, see that. That's one one yeah. thing we can we can plan. Bill, there's also the oh, sorry, go ahead. No, just, there, there's also the, the the timeline issue, and this is really confusing. And I don't know that anybody's provided a solid answer to this. But if if a town or village opts out, then they have to. There's there's a timeline where within a certain number of days. They have to allow for a permissive referendum, which is a, a vote from the residents, a, a certain percentage of, of the residents in that town or village. And we're hearing that the pro-cannabis lobby is, um, you know, is, is poised to send out these petitions and force these votes in, in a lot of different areas if the towns or villages do opt out. So you have to allow time for that. You have to allow time to, to have the referendum. If you were going to have the referendum on, you know, during the general election in November, I think time has pretty much run out for that. So so they would have to you would have to pass the legis legislation in time to allow for the, you know, the, the movement for the permissive referendum and then schedule a vote at the towns or villages expense that would be separate for for just the um you know, just the, the marijuana sales or the cannabis sales mm -hmm. um so I'm, I'm and look i i think the you know certainly all the towns and villages have attorneys who are on top of this and, and hopefully they they have a better understanding than i do of this timeline but i think time is is running out and you know and i would hate to see any of them get stopped short um, West Hampton Beach Village is poised to opt out. And the question was raised at the last meeting where they discussed it. And, and the village attorneys at that point said they thought they were OK um, regarding the timeline. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but that all comes into play. That's all that the political morass that surrounds these issues. And Gianna, we come kind of full circle that we have to make the point that uh, the Shinnecock Nation is, of course, a sovereign nation. And we get into some murky legal territory here regarding um, how closely they need to follow state laws. But they have said the tribe's leaders have said that they are going to follow New York State's lead. And it's kind of interesting to me that they do seem to be holding back on any kind of action towards recreational marijuana. And they are moving forward with the medical marijuana facility, which quite frankly, especially in the current climate where uh, we're on the road to legalization in, in New York state, it's not hard to get a medical marijuana card. And, and so the, the, the tribe seems to be holding back a little, but they're putting in place the, the infrastructure that they're gonna need to move forward in a big way when we finally get uh, all of the legalities dealt with in New York State. And they're going to be positioned to be a big player. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're not uh, moving forward in any, you know, reckless way. You know, it's been slow, measured, disciplined movements. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, with where we are on the road to legalization and the ease of of getting a medical certification, uh, I don't think they, they really need it. What they need to do is make sure there's not uh, backlash as they build the infrastructure, get everything in place, and, you know, they can choose to pivot at any moment when, you know, the uh, when things change coming down the line. 
This is also, it's just important to note, this is just one of a flurry of projects that the nation has announced in the last few uh, months. They plan to build a casino, of course, on territory in uh, just outside Southampton Village. They're talking now about a spa and hotel a resort on Westwood's property in Hampton Bays and uh, potentially tax-free, tax-free gas stations uh, along Sunrise Highway uh, near where those monuments are. So a lot going on with the Shinnecock Nation after many years of, of wanting to get moving. It seems like a lot of these projects are all moving on separate tracks at the same time. So Doing a lot and dreaming even bigger. You know, the last time I spoke with Brian Polite, he mentioned the tribal police force. So mm-hmm all stuff that uh, when I look at the movement in the past few years, I'm blown away. And when I see uh, what they're they're thinking about, uh, I can't be anything but impressed. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Gianna's right. They, they, they seem to have in the last few years be taking a slow and measured approach to um, to increasing you know revenues um, to bring them up to a level playing field. Um, and I think that's just that's just so smart. And, and to be able to diversify like that, rather than putting all their eggs in one basket, which is what they did for years, thinking about a casino, either either locally or, or operating a casino through a, through a state patent somewhere else. Um, I, I think they're, they're really um, the, the leadership there today is, is just really playing things right. I was yeah, going to say playing I, their cards right, but I didn't want the same <laughs> reference. I really let's think. not forget the monuments on Sunrise Highway too. I believe this summer they were they were just full of advertisements, and that was not something that was true early on because of the legal battles, uh, which are continuing. But a lot of folks seem not to be as nervous about those anymore. That may be a good sign for for the tribe as well. Uh, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our guests today are Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star, Ambrose Clancy from the Shelter Island Reporter, and Gianna Volpe of WLIWFM. Um, so, Ambrose, now we move on to the. This is the. This is the main story because we all we're just going to all sit back and let you tell this story because you have one of those stories that we all just. Uh, you know, they're they're not fun stories, but oh my goodness, what an amazing thing to write about. Uh, someone filed a big lawsuit this week, and it has a connection uh, to something of a murder mystery on Shelter Island. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, it's um, there is a new development in a case um, of homicide, which is the on, only the second homicide in Shelter Island's 350 year history of wow. when white settlers arrived. Um, and the story was in May of 2018, a retired uh, Episcopal priest, uh, Reverend Canon Paul Wankura, uh, who lived alone in a kind of remote part of the island, uh, even more remote in March. Um, he was discovered in his house uh, between crammed between a bed and a wall with his hands uh, tightly bound. And he had been there, the police estimated, anywhere from two to seven days. By and he was an elderly man, right? 87 years old, yes. Um, and he was airlifted to Stony Brook Hospital. Um, he endured uh, a really tough treatment, blood transfusions. His left wrist, I think, if I remember correctly, was amputated. And he died of his wounds about three weeks later. 
the police, uh, the Shelter Island Police and the Suffolk County Police Departments um, looked at it as a home invasion burglary. Um, they also came out very early on and said that uh, this was not a random incident. In fact, the Suffolk County uh, homicide detective said that the person or persons um, who did this knew they weren't going into an unoccupied house. Uh, a couple of items were stolen, more than a couple of items were stolen, uh, especially a um, rather valuable wristwatch. That was 2018. There has been no break in the case at all. And then um, last week or the week before, uh, a lawsuit was filed in state Supreme Court, uh, a North Carolina man asking for $20 million damages against the Episcopal Diocese and two of the Episcopal parishes on Long Island uh, in Suffolk County that he had been uh, sexually assaulted and sexually abused uh, in from 1978 to 1985 when he was 11 to 15 years old by Reverend Wankura, the priest who uh, died in a homicide. Um, it's it's a case that there, you know, rumors ran rampant uh, on Shelter Island, of course. Like I said, it's it's an extremely peaceful, safe place. Uh, this was shocking. There had never been any um, hint or inkling about Reverend Rancura being associated with sexual abuse or especially sexual assault on this boy or anybody else. The suit maintains that the Episcopal Diocese knew he was a predator and the one of the parishes knew he was a predator or interestingly enough, should have known and did nothing about it. Um, so the, um, the Episcopal Diocese has said in a statement that I got that they were you know, very, very concerned and they've handed off to their lawyers. The Suffolk County uh, detective that I interviewed at length, uh, he just said no comment on this. Um, I was going to say, as a journalist covering this, Ambrose, and you've done this uh, for, for many years, and, you know, we have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. But often investigators in a case like this will leave breadcrumbs yes. to sort of follow. And when they say this was not random and that they knew he was going to be home, there are some implications in those statements, right? Well, they are, and that's all they are is, is implications. It could have been, you know, there was a rumor that seemed to have gained some kind of ground that there had been uh, some workers putting in bulkheads down there in where he lived um, in February, and the, the door was always open, as they are on Shelter Island, but his garage door was always open, and somebody working uh, on on the bulkhead, could have seen him come and go and realize there's nobody else in there and could have thought, let's go in and rip him off. Uh, what they, the way he was left though, looked, you know, really torturous. Um, again, what you said is so true, Joe, is that he was a beloved figure on Shelter Island and he was also a beloved figure in uh, the Caroline Parish in Setauket, where the, the suit alleges this happened. Um, 
I talked to a lot of people in, on the island, uh, friends of his who knew him, and also people in the Caroline Parish, and they spoke, always spoke of him as being, um, you know, empathetic, a person of great kindness, um, a person who loved life. Um, and there was, so we have to be really careful because looking at it, as someone once told me a long time ago, anybody can get a lawyer, anybody can file a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that's where the story is. Um, we're hoping that, that there will be some more developments coming. Wow, that's amazing stuff. And, and it echoes because some of the, the allegations against uh, some priests from the Catholic Church on the East End, uh, we've had some names come up in the lists that have been identified in some of the lawsuits as well. So um, this region, uh, there was some conversation about whether the Catholic Church kept some priests um, in parishes out here despite some allegations. So there's some yeah. echoes of that in there. That's why that's why the lawsuit is against the diocese. Um, the other thing interesting, the other homicide uh, before the homicide of Reverend Wankura was in 1998, when a neighbor uh, killed another neighbor, shot him with a shotgun. Uh, and because the neighbor who was killed was charged the week before with abusing an eight-year-old girl. Um, and so there is that terrible connection of mm -hmm. uh, child abuse. And on Shelter Island, when that happened in 98, um, there were many people who said justice was done. Um, you know, uh, of course, justice wasn't done, but the the idea that everybody knew about what was going on. Finally, he was charged with uh, with child abuse and then he was murdered by uh, I'm sorry, what was and killed by his neighbor who did some time upstate. Uh, he was convicted and did some time upstate. So those are the only two incidents, people are always amazed. And I was too, when I first learned about this, the only homicides in 350 years that since the white settlers arrived. And it was a time when Reverend Mancura was killed. It was a terrible time. It was the great cliche was true. It was a loss of innocence. Um, mm -hmm. It was uh, people were beyond shocked that this had happened uh, on Shelter Island and to, you know, an elderly man who, who died in such a terrible way. Just a fascinating story. You know, staying with the, with the, the police, um, Carissa, you guys um, had a story about a hit and run in Amagansett and a statement that the, the accused driver uh, made to police. Tell us about that. Yes. So um, very sadly, uh, there was a hit and run, <clears throat> excuse me, on August 10th um, in Amagansett. And um, the 18-year-old victim died three days later of his injuries. Um, the 19-year-old driver um, who was arraigned last Thursday, um, we, Christine Sampson obtained the, his statement to police this week. And, um, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking. The, the, um, the driver who was, um, had not been drinking or doing drugs, um, was found to be sober by police. Um, in his statement, he said he was, um, taking his sister and some of her friends from Montauk to this massive party in Amagansett off of a road called Old Stone High Highway, which is a winding 
narrow road, no shoulders, no streetlights. Um, and the police had not long before um, broken up this party, which they estimated there were 800 to 1,000 people at. Good Lord. So, um, so there were, and, the, and they were largely young people in the sort of 17 to 21 age range. And so these people were, the people who had left the party or the people who, like the, um, the victim of the hit and run, hadn't even yet arrived at the party, according to his family, um, was, had been dropped off to go to it, but hadn't actually gone to it. They were just um, filling the streets as the party was broken up. And um, this, this um, 19-year-old driver hit the 18-year-old victim, uh, allegedly. Um, but in his statement to police, he said that he, um, you know, he panicked and left the scene. Um, and he had, he said to them in, um, in a statement, police said that he told him he had, he was afraid he had killed somebody. Mm. Um, and indeed that person did later die from their injuries. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's quite moving. Um, it's obviously a tragedy for the for the young person who died, he was going to be a freshman at NYU this um, this fall, and also for the for the young driver who you know that changes your life forever. And in his statement, he was, I thought from what I read, very remorseful. Um, and uh, you what, know, what kind of charges is he facing? So the charges are um, at the moment it's uh, leaving the scene of an accident with. Um, I'm just going to find it so I don't say the wrong thing, but it's, uh, I think, leaving the scene of an accident with a serious physical injury, which is a felony. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that they upgraded the charges after he, after the victim passed away or not. It doesn't appear that they have, or at least not yet. Um, so, yeah, that's just the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, if sad, re that, um, Two, two lives shattered in, in, in yeah. an instant. That's really yeah. Sad. Not to mention the family and <clears throat> you know the whole all of and not you know not to mention probably the the host of the party as well. Um, so it's just uh, you know it's heartbreaking. But we've written before about you know it doesn't appear to be the case here uh, that there was you say that that police don't believe alcohol or drugs were involved at all in this case. But we've written before about the fact that the state law, um, there, there have been incidents in the past where people have left the scene of an, of a, you know, if they've left the scene of an accident where someone's injured because they had alcohol or drugs in their system mm -hmm. and the state law really, it, it, it almost benefits a driver to leave the scene in a case like that, because it's much harder to prove mm -hmm. uh, that they were drunk later. Again, I want to stress that's not the case in, in this particular case that yeah. you wrote about, well, but it's in, this it, it kid, has some echoes. This kid was, was obviously very nervous and, you know, and, and traumatized the driver I'm talking about yeah, and, yeah. And, and left, but, but people got to know that that's just absolutely the wrong thing to do if you're involved in an accident. And it sounds like this wasn't, was an accident. You, you, uh -huh. you gotta, you gotta stay, you gotta call the police, you gotta get the, the victim help. And, 
you know, and most times you would avoid charges that way. It's the, yeah, the, charge, the charge comes from him leaving, not, not that's from, true, Carissa, right? If he had stopped, yeah, he I probably so. wouldn't face any charges. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, there were, as I said, there were many, many, many people in the who were there. And so it wasn't that this young, um, you know, that this 18 year old victim was left on the side of the road with nobody around. Many right. contacted the police. There were hundreds of people in the area. Um, and the sad thing is that this, the driver, the 19 year old driver was, it appears from his statement that he was the designated driver to drive like seven, his sister and seven friends to this party mm. being the responsible one. And he described a chaotic scene at the, when he got there. Um, and, you know, it's just, huh. but yeah, it's, it, it's a case where had he, had he stopped, had he um, called the police, had he stayed on the scene, I think um, the accidental nature of this would have still been tragic, but, but it's just made worse by the fact that um, the, the leaving the scene of, of the accident. Kind of a double tragedy. Yeah. yeah that's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, when you consider also where COVID numbers are right now, and you look at a party, 800, 1,000 people strong, you know, uh, new COVID infections leading into the weekend at 1,200 new cases per day when just two months ago we were at 100 per day. So that's uh, 800 to 1,000 people in incredibly close proximity to one another um it's just like uh some sprinkles on top of an incredibly sad story and with the young people not being vaccinated at the same rate that allows us to sort of flow into uh a final topic which is uh the new governor kathy hochul this week uh was on the south fork just before being sworn in as governor um but she uh very quickly followed through on her promises and signed a a, a mandate uh, that any student, any teacher in school this fall uh, is going to have to wear a mask. And that sort of removed the, the responsibility of making that choice from all of the local school districts, which generally, I think we're moving in that direction anyway. But, but Bill, I know that, that in West Hampton Beach and in some of the other communities throughout the, the East End, uh, some parents are reacting badly to this news, right? West Hampton Beach, particularly, we covered a meeting uh, the other night where there were a bunch of um, parents. And, and, and this was even after the governor had made their announcement. And there was just a bunch of parents there who were, um, you know, objecting to to a mask mandate in the district and um, talking about how, you know, masks in, in their eyes can be more dangerous than, than not wearing masks. Um, they, they were kind of um, citing facts and figures about this was an odd part to me that they you know that they were saying that last year as masks were being worn there there weren't that many infection rates among children in, in the schools and and if i were there i would have wanted to shout yes because they were wearing masks you know i mean at least at least partially um but these parents are were, were very upset they believe it should be a parental decision on whether their kids should wear masks and in schools or not. And, um, you know, we had talked about this last week, I think on the show, and it, it just, it perplexes me that, that parents would, would take this stance when the safety of their children, um, 
you know, is, is at play? How do you how do you stand up for for you know um, rights to not wear a mask when when it's been it's been proven that masks help um, you know um, keep the keep the spread uh, low? Yeah, absolutely. Ambrose, Carissa, are are you hearing the same things in your communities that there are groups of parents who are upset with the mask mandates? On Shelter Island, um, not there has not been any real pushback at all. Uh, the school before the governor's uh, mandate had mandated that um, masks must be worn by by students, teachers, anybody within the school. Seems to be I we haven't heard any real pushback. A little bit on social media. Um, I don't even know if the first person on social media have kids in school. But uh, there hasn't been uh, a real pushback against it. We had it a year ago. We had some anti-vaxxers. They hate to be called that. Uh, were upset. Um, and the school basically said, if you don't have your kids vaccinated, and these are vaccinations against the childhood diseases, measles, mumps, stuff like that. Um, the school just school district just plainly said, if you, if you don't want to get your children vaccinated, prepare to homeschool. And everybody kind of fell in line. So it's not a big deal on Shelter Island. Carissa, most of the most of these Hampton districts have, have followed suit too, right? They were planning mass mandates already. Yeah. I mean, the Suffolk County earlier than um, I think it was two weeks ago, that Suffolk County came out and said, this is our guidance that all teachers and all and all um, students should wear masks in school. And then to have the to have that mandate from the state certainly helps um, make that uh, decision easier for the districts if they're on the fence. But I think that the districts that we cover had already gone in that direction and were already looking at the Delta variant and how much more highly transmissible it is and deciding that the safest thing was to continue with the masks. And, and with the masks and what we now know about COVID and its transmission and um, how we sort of live within that, um, try to give the students uh, as normal a year as they can have. But yeah, wear the mask because that's the one thing that that has been shown to very simply reduce transmission, especially among the under 12 who can't even get vaccinated yet. You know, it's interesting, Carissa, um, Governor Hochul, um, one of her, uh, it was on her first day after being sworn in, I was listening to her being interviewed on Morning Edition on WLIW, actually. And she mentioned that she had met with superintendents and school officials from all over the state. And they actually asked for the mask mandate to come from the governor's office so that it would take some of the pressure off of them that they were starting to, to feel at the local level, having to answer the critics, and that by having a statewide mask mandate, it just sort of removed the local um, decision from that. I found that kind of fascinating. Um, and um, Gianna, you had mentioned Sorry, that- the, Actually, you know, I had just read yesterday, um, um, I think it was the New York, NYPD police commissioner sort of saying the same thing that he's 100% for um, a vaccination mandate for officers stopped short of doing it, but was saying, you know, that he hoped that it would come from above. Uh, the school districts have been had been looking for guidance uh, all, uh, throughout the summer leading up to opening, hoping uh, it would come uh, from higher up. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and Gianna, you had mentioned uh, very briefly, we have a, you know, our first female governor in New York state, and it came at kind of a timely uh, moment, didn't it? Yeah. Thursday was uh, Women's Equality Day. Uh, it was a very striking moment, uh, especially with what is going on in Afghanistan, the exodus there, um, you know, and very uh, tragic bombing on Thursday. Uh, you know, it was sort of this Lady Liberty moment where she talked about the state as a beacon of hope, uh, welcoming uh, re uh, refugees from Afghanistan. Uh, it's it's been just a, a uh, terrifying scene there. Um, President Biden saying we're going ahead with the pullout within the week. So that's um, uh, Tuesday, I believe. Um, but I just thought what a marked uh, difference from sort of like the post 9-11 uh, um, politics that we've seen since 2001, um, uh, instead of closing, uh, looking to welcome folks that are trying to escape unsafe situations. Um, I'd love to localize the story. I, I can't wait to hear from Ambrose if we have any time about uh, the localization of the story there. But if there are any refugees uh, that are out there in the listening audience, uh, I'd love to speak to you on the heart of the East End. Uh, the number is 631-591-7006. Yeah, unfortunately, Ambrose, we don't have time, but you do have a story this week in the reporter about a connection with the Afghanistan, correct? We, we, it was we can, it was it was last week actually before the uh, before the horrific bombing of a Marine, an Islander, a Marine uh, veteran who had been there in 2012, and he part of his unit was helping to train um, the Afghan uh, National Security Forces. And his quote, which I led the story with, was, uh, "I feel like I'm torn in two. Uh, that's terrible. We'll make sure um, we go look at that for sure. Thank you, guys. Uh, this has been Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Bill Sutton was my co-host. Ambrose Clancy of the Shelter Island Reporter. Carissa Katz of the East Hampton Star. Gianna Volpe of the Harvest End on WLIWFM. Thank you, guys. Uh, and we'll see everybody next week.